Good morning. morning. Beautiful day to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? If you would please join me in the responsive reading this morning, I think it will be there on the screen behind me. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him.
Before uh, you take your seat, make sure you take a moment just to greet somebody nearby. It is good to be able to worship together here um, with you all. And uh, just just a note here, the, the rose on the altar is um, to celebrate the birth of Gabriel Isaac Jordan to parents Jill and Jack and siblings Grace, Jack and Lucy. So congratulations there. There are a number of different announcements that you can follow along with um, in the bulletin. Certainly take time to read through it. I'm just going to highlight a few of those that we continue to offer the sign-ups for our church directory that's going to be taking the pictures in August 6th to 8th and September 11th through 14th. There are three options. You can sign up today in the foyer down below. After church, you can go online. Uh, you'll see the banner at the hwchurch.org a website, and there's a banner across the play, uh, page, Life Touch. You can click on that, and it'll give you options to sign up as well. Or you can call Dean or Carmen Lydic and uh, make sure you call between 9 and 9. I don't know if it's 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. or 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. We'll go with that. And uh, just give them a call and uh, let them know if that's what you prefer to do as well. We're in our Sabbath uh, time during the, the summer months, and so next week, we have um, Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, Children's Church and Nursery, as is today. And uh, we encourage you during this time just to really take quality time with your family, obviously worshiping God at all times, but taking time with your family during those extra moments that you're given um, on our, from our normal Sunday schedule. And the next week is kind of a full week with some really neat and exciting things that are going on. First of all, um, if you like to paint and enjoy fellowship, the 20th, next Saturday, um, the garage is going to be worked on. And so if you could come over in the morning from 8 to noon, we'd love to have you help out. Did you hear the word help out? Make sure you come over and help out and work with painting. And Steve and others will see to it that it gets done in an orderly fashion. But great time, a chance just to fellowship and enjoy working together during that time. During the week, Love Buffalo, our youth are heading up to Buffalo from the 15th to the 19th. Keep them in prayer. Keep the leaders in prayer. What a privilege to go up and interact with the people up in Buffalo, with the needs that are there. There are needs around here, and we know that well. But this is an opportunity for kind of like a short-term mission trip for our youth to be a part of. Pray for them. Pray for the leaders, safety, and all that's going on. Lives will be impacted, not only for the people up there, but for our own people, our own youth, as they are interacting and reaching out in this service project. And then finally, I'll just mention this, that next Sunday, the 21st, is a baptism service. And so if you're interested, give the church office a call. And during the week, Pastor Wes will meet with you and interact with you. And uh, you can be a part of the baptism uh, next week uh, on the 21st during the morning time. At this time, we're going to read together the prayer of confession. It should be here on the overhead. Dear Heavenly Father, We lower our heads before you, and we confess that we have too often forgotten that we are yours. Sometimes we carry our lives as if there was no God, and we fall short of being a credible witness to you. For these things we ask your forgiveness, and we also ask for your strength. Give us clear minds and open hearts so we may witness to you in our world. Remind us to be who you would have us to be, regardless of what we are doing 
or who we are with. Hold us to you and build our relationship with you and with those you have given us on earth. Amen. As we continue in worship together, please stand and join us. Destined to die, poured out for all 
You may be seated. Good morning. You know, sometimes in life we pray a long time for things, and we don't always know uh, if and when that prayer is answered. Other times when we pray, the answers are very immediate. Last Sunday, as we gathered, we prayed for Royal Family Kids Camp uh, and that we would have a great week of camp. And those prayers were answered last week in very mighty ways. Uh, For many of our campers, their week at Royal Family Kids Camp is the highlight of their year. Monday afternoon, as I was walking around camp, I joined in with a counselor and a couple of boys who were playing with stomp rockets, uh, stomping on a little... Uh, air cushion and shooting rockets into the air. And the one counselor said to his camper, so what's next? And the counselor said, well, I think we have snack time next, and then it's swimming. And the little guy flopped on the grass and said, this is the best day of my whole year. And we'd only been at camp for four hours. One little guy, a second grader that became a favorite of mine during the week, rushed up to me that afternoon, the first, first day. He'd already caught four fish. And every time that he saw me that week, he would give me an update on his fishing total. Uh, I think he kept Bob Danner very busy that week down at the dock. It's easy to forget sometimes at camp when you're caught up in fun and you hear all the laughter, uh, some of the the tough times that these children have faced in their lives. And and really one of the goals of camp is to help them to have fun. Uh, But occasionally the tough circumstances that have worked in their lives are, are brought out in very vivid ways. Uh, One of our more memorable campers this week, a first-year camper, a six-year-old who can't read yet, uh, had an incredible ability to weave a tapestry of profanity together uh, that would uh, make any merchant sailor proud. And I apologize to any merchant sailors out there. Uh, And usually his uh, profanities were accompanied by uh, appropriate hand gestures to punctuate, I should say inappropriate hand gestures, Uh, And yet, one morning at chapel, I saw this little guy uh, seated on his counselor's lap, uh, cuddled up with him as we were singing, and I thought, here's a little boy that really needs a lot of love. One afternoon in the pool, one of our first-year counselors had that brought to his mind very vividly when his camper swam up to him and threw his arms around his neck and said, I love you more than I love anybody else in the whole world. My dad's mean to me and hits me a lot, and my mom left us. That's a lot for a 19-year-old counselor to carry. One morning as I went down to breakfast, there was a little note on the table for where the staff, uh, a lot of the staff sit, and there was a little note that said from a camper, I like camp so much I could live here. Another camper told John Van Wicklin at the end of the week, he said, I went to another camp one time, and it wasn't so hot. I really like this camp. You know, we do a lot of ministries at this church, a lot of valuable things that we do uh, around the world here in the county, but I can't think of too many things that we do that's more valuable than Royal Family Kids Camp, because these children, many of them, are truly the least of these. I want to thank you so much on behalf of camp for your financial support, and especially for your prayer support this week, and I I uh, want you to remember that, that we don't just pray for Royal Family Kids Camp the Sunday before it starts. Uh, we need to pray for these kids year-round because they face difficult circumstances every day of their lives. And I'm praying that we'll see these kids back next week at camp because they truly are precious in his sight. Thank you.
forward to assist us with our tithes and offerings, please stand and we'll sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all Holy Father, you lavish so many good things on us, your children. We pray that you would give us generous hearts as we give back but a portion of all that you have given to us. Amen. You may be seated. Children ages 2 to 5 may be dismissed for Children's Church. Each other toward love and good. 
谢。This is uh, the time that we have the privilege of uh, going to prayer. And uh, the altar is open, and perhaps while you're standing, it's a little easier sometimes. If you'd like to come up to the altar and, and kneel here, you're welcome to do that. There's, if you, it's difficult to kneel. There's some chairs up here to, to sit at, or you can stand up as well. But this is a, an opportunity for us to go to the Lord in prayer. So let's go ahead and gather around the altar, those who would like to, and the rest of you remain seated, all right? As people are, are coming to gather around the altar, just want to make a, a note that's not in your bulletin um, under the area of the different prayer needs. Margaret Wynn yesterday was taken into the hospital uh, in the morning, and uh, her back was giving her a hard time, and, and uh, she's been kept for a couple of days, but she's actually been moved over into ICU. So just keep her in prayer, and uh, Betsy, who is with her, uh, just reaching out and loving her and helping her along. So let's remember them in prayer. And there's a number of other ones in our bulletins that will just kind of keep you posted on, on how to be praying during this time. Lord, do let us consider how we can love one another. Because, God, you have loved us. You have found us. We have found you. And there's a bond because of your sacrifice for us, Lord. Because of your desire to have a relationship with each of us. What a powerful thought. God who created the world in six days, who walked on water, who gave sight to the blind, who healed the leper, to, Lord, raise the dead. And on and on and on it goes, Lord, of things we've read about and yet things we've also experienced in our own lives. You, God, you desire to hold us to have us gather on your lap, just as that picture in that story that was shared about Royal Family Kid Camp. As children come who have burdens and needs, Lord, you love that when we run to you.
and we gather onto your lap and we desire to be held. And Lord, you love it when we scream and shout with excitement for the great things that are going on and the praises flow off our lips because of all that you're doing in our lives or maybe it's in our family's lives or our friends. So God, as as we're here now, we're here to worship you. We're here to honor you and just say thank you. Thank you for all that is going on in our lives. Some of it painful, but we know there you are in the midst of that pain, reaching out, touching and healing and directing and comforting each of us as we wrestle through the difficult times in our lives as well as we celebrate the great times. And Lord, there are a number of different needs within our congregation. And we think of those even now, and we think of Margaret specifically, and we just pray, God, be close to her. Thank you for the the wonderful person that she is and all that she means to so many of us here. We ask, God, that today, um, that as Betsy is there and uh, nurses and doctors are attending her, working with her, that they will have great wisdom that comes from you. And they will be able to care for her. We pray for her emotionally, Lord, spiritually, that she may be able to smile. I was encouraging yesterday, just visiting with her, and the smile and the laughter, uh, even as she was feeling pain. Thank you for her, Lord, and we pray for those needs. And there's so many others, Lord, within our congregation, and friends and family members as well. We thank you, God, that we can bring all these before you, knowing just that that is an aspect of who you are that you want us to cry out to you with these needs and the various people battling cancer or illnesses or physical needs, Lord, that are bones and ligaments and tendon related, Lord. Uh, Perhaps there are emotional needs uh, that are binding and holding us back from being able just to reach out and enjoy the days, uh, each day as they're given to us. I pray for these needs within our congregation and within the outlying Uh, parts of our congregation, extended families, Lord. We pray for spiritual needs, Lord. I I think of this community right now, and it's a fascinating thought. As I walked up and around the campus the other day, and between water balloons and activities, and then there's groups talking about a a Bible verse or a passage they were just talking about. And just, it's amazing all that's going on up on that campus. And over the academy as well as other camps are gathering. So much is happening, primarily in the lives of young people. But those who are interacting with them, Lord, are being changed as well. And we thank you for this community, a privilege of being here. And we ask that your blessing, your hand would just fall and and guide and direct all the conversations, the activities, protect people from the things that are going on. And it's all meant to bring fun and laughter, but there can always be incidents that occur. And we ask God that you would protect from such things, that you, Lord, would be lifted up high and, and people would be drawn unto you. And, oh, God, we thank you for the report about Royal Family Kids Camp. And, Lord, as this week has come to a close and as children head home, and not only children, the campers, but as the counselors and the directors and the staff, there's a bit of a letdown. And, God, we pray that you would just step right in there and be what you need to be to these people, those who have given and and witnessed and seen lives changed or heard about the pain that is real. We pray that you would protect them, but encourage them to remember and to pray 
for those that are hurting and, and going back to difficult scenes and scenarios and families and situations. We pray for the children, Lord, that as they were tanked up with incredible amounts of your love this week, that it would go and go and, and somehow God miraculously not only use all that love to get them along, but draw others across their paths, that somehow in the difficult days that they would see a smile somewhere that would remind them of Royal Family Kids Camp, but more importantly, of the love they discovered there in you. And so we pray for these needs, Lord. We thank you for those who serve abroad, and we lift them up to you and the different needs there, um, asking God that you'll grant them wisdom as they are home, away from home, in serving uh, in a capacity that's hard to comprehend for us here. And we pray for them, that you will bless them and encourage them in their work and their ministry there. And where it's difficult, may they continue to work hard, seeking your direction. Bring them encouragement, Lord, and success on your behalf. And then, Lord, we think of those who serve our, our nation, both militarily and politically. And God, we pray that your, your grace and your mercy would flow through. And that these people, these men and women, would be touched by you and be directed and guided by you. Protect those that are in harm's way, that are serving our country and ever other countries as well for freedom. And we pray for their families here waiting Give them comfort. And somehow, Lord, let them know how much they and their husband or wife are appreciated or their, their children are appreciated for laying their lives down and willingly go. And for the political leaders, Lord, we pray right from this level here in our own community, right on up through to the national level, and even the world leaders, God, we lift them all before you. And others in that group, Lord, may have no desire and even be appalled at the thought of even thinking about seeking your wisdom. But in spite of that, Lord, we pray that you would give them wisdom. Use these people, Lord, to accomplish your great, good, and mighty, and perfect will. That the world would come to know and see the light and come to you. Lord, we pray these things in your wonderful name, in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray together, Lord, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth that is this in heaven, and give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever. Amen. Scripture reading for this morning can be found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, then continuing in verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 10. I don't know what page that is in the Pew Bible because I didn't look that up in the Pew Bible, but it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verses 1 through 8. 
And this is Paul's ministry in Thessalonica and then him longing to see the Thessalonians once he's left. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. But we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Continued in verse 17. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who was our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you. Night and day we pray, most earnestly, that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand and join us as we sing together.
You may be seated. Um, people ask me sometimes what I like about preaching, um, what parts of it I like and what parts of it I don't like. And I like almost everything about it, but one part I've never liked is giving my sermons a title. I just feel like I have to boil down a whole 20 or 25 minute talk into like four words, and that just seems impossible to me. And, and truth be told, the best sermon titlers have these witty titles that always make this great first impression on the listener. And, and I'm not very good at that, and so I don't want to make a bad first impression. So whenever possible, I've gone out of my way not to title my sermons. And I figure my listeners can give it a title of their own if they, if they care to give it a title. But like, So like I say, I'm reluctant to it all. But, but then I thought about the genius of the TV show Friends. And I'm not sure how many of you are Friends fans here. There's so few willing to admit it, or I'm getting old. I don't know. That's a, that's options. I'm not really a fan. In fact, I have some elaborate theories about the TV show Friends and how it's a pathetic fantasy about a lonely culture like ours, dreaming what it would be like to have friends, and that's the best they can come up with. But that's, that's a whole other sermon. Thanks. The, uh, the genius, though, of the show Friends, if there is a genius, is the way they title their episode. And Friends episodes always start with the one where. And so one episode may be the one where Ross and Chandler get lost, the one where Phoebe lies. There's no witty little titles to the episodes, just here's what happens. And so I've decided to give that a go in my sermon titling this morning. And that's why today's sermon is titled, The One About Integrity. So hopefully you know what today's sermon is going to be about. When you go back to the bulletin, you can be like, yeah, that was the one about integrity. I've been thinking a lot recently about how being a Christian in our culture 
opens you up to being misunderstood. And I think that's especially true in a culture like ours, which on the one hand is highly polarized, right? meaning that people in our culture tend to have strong opinions and are given to a, a strong dislike of people who have other opinions. And on the other hand, we also are part of an internet culture where people can trade stories about how dumb their, the people they disagree with are more easily and more quickly than they ever have before. So we live in a world where there are lots of opinions and lots of ways to share those opinions and not a whole lot of nuance in the way we, we share those opinions. Uh, if you doubt this, um, you might just have jumped on Facebook as I did last night around 11 p.m. right after the George Zimmerman verdict was handed down and you were able to see people on both sides so certain they knew what was right and so certain uh, that the people on the other side were not right and I just felt like, wow, as a Christian to respond to this is terribly complex, terribly difficult and I felt like if I were to offer anything meaningful as a Christian, it would be something that nobody would understand. (laughs) It would be something that nobody would appreciate. Uh, We live in a world that fancies itself very thoughtful and more progressive and more thoughtful than the ages that came before us. Yet at the same time, we're very prone to shoot first and ask questions later when it comes to opinion issues like this. So in a culture like this, I think thoughtful Christians struggle with a credibility problem. There are all sorts of things that we believe that are strange and foreign and even bizarre to the culture in which we live. Uh, Traditionally minded Christians may feel this when talking about culture war issues like abortion, like same-sex marriage, where traditional Christian positions are more and more understood as fringe positions rather than respectable mainstream alternatives. And of course, far more importantly, or far more important than those culture war issues, there are all sorts of foundational theological Christian beliefs that are just bizarre to the culture around us. Dead people living again. A carpenter turned rabbi 2,000 years ago is the key to your eternal destiny. That's bizarre. That sounds weird to the culture we live in. Again, a culture that fancies itself very thoughtful, but is generally unwilling to listen to the reasons we may have for believing those things. How do we maintain credibility in a culture like this? It's an important question, and not just for our own sake, not just so that we feel good about having credibility, right? It's not simply so that I can pat myself on the back and say, someone takes me seriously. That's not why I'm asking this question about how we maintain credibility. I'm asking this question because we think that we have a word that can change lives and a word that ultimately can transform the world. How do we credibly speak that word in this culture is an important question. How can we speak that word in a culture that may be dismissive of the way that we think? I read an article about this issue by a philosopher at Eastern University, which is right outside of Philadelphia. And he was talking about a music video that was openly derisive of Christians. And he wondered what the best response was. And he said, well, there's no way to argue with the music video, right? There's no way to raise rational arguments about this music video because the rational arguments would fall on deaf ears. Why? Because the singer in the video is not doing something rational. They're not presenting a case. They're appealing to the heart rather than the mind, right? That's not to say it's right or it's wrong. It's just to say the music video sought to convince you 
Not through rational argument, but by powerful words, powerful music, powerful images that overwhelm your heart when you watch the video. So, so what's a Christian response to that? Christians have generally done one of two things, uh, neither of which in my mind is terribly helpful. But one option is that Christians keep aiming for the head rather than the heart. And here I'm thinking about Christians who may be big into apologetics, people who find the the best historical, philosophical reasons to defend the Christian faith. Now, that's a fine job, but truth be told, in many areas in our culture, it's kind of a fool's errand because our culture is not interested in rational answers to these questions. I'm convinced today that the main roadblock to people becoming Christian is not intellectual, It's not that they can't reconcile things in their mind. It's not that they think I can't be a Christian and be smart. It's that they think I can't be a Christian and be nice. That makes sense? That that overwhelmingly the picture of Christians that people have in their mind is not a nice person. And so that's the main main roadblock. The main reason they won't become Christian is because they they can't quite fancy themselves becoming one of those people. Who are not nice. So I think continuing to aim solely at the head is not a great decision. The other option, of course, is focusing on the heart. And that's what the fellow who wrote this article said. He said, we might need people to make our own music videos, right? We might need people who can make Christianity, can kind of speak a word that might make it relevant to today's culture. So we drop the rational approach. We drop aiming for the head and we just aim for the heart. But I think this problem has its, or this issue has its own problems, right? For one, sometimes when we try to make the gospel cool, we fail, and we fail spectacularly sometimes. We create a lame imitation of pop culture sometimes, and even though sometimes, even if we do a pretty good job, we still make the gospel disposable, I think. Here's what I mean by that. I, I look through my old contemporary Christian CDs, my White Heart, my DC Talk. If you're my people, you're out there. You understand these CDs I have. My White Heart, my DC Talk, my Mortification, my, my Jump Five. And I, I'm, I'm embarrassed, right? <laughs> right? And I wonder, is that the best thing for us to be doing? Should Christians be creating art that we know five years from now is going to wind up in the clearance rack? Is that the best thing for us to be doing? That's what pop culture does. It has a short shelf life. It ages and dies. And it serves to to highlight our generational differences rather than our continuity in Christ. Even as I'm talking about my white heart, my DC talk, some of you are old enough that you don't know who those people are. And some of you are young enough that you don't know who those people are. And if my uh, spirituality is rooted in those people, well, that just serves to highlight how very different we are rather than how united and how one we are. So this isn't meant to be a whole long discourse on contemporary Christian music. That also is another sermon for another time. But I just want you to know, I think aiming just for the heart has its own set of problems. So I don't think we just aim for the head. I don't think we just aim for the heart. So, Mike, what do you think we do? This is what I want to suggest. If we want to be taken seriously in our culture for the good of the kingdom and for the good of this world, we shouldn't be so worried about the heart or the head Instead, one of the best things we can do is to be a person of integrity. Now, often we think about a a person of integrity and we have kind of in our minds a, a noble person who just doesn't quite fit in with the culture. Someone everybody likes theoretically, but nobody can stand to be around interpersonally. 
But I think it's, it's actually the opposite, right? We live in a very fragmented world. I'll talk more about it later. But I think one of the reasons why we're so polarized as a culture is because we're at war with ourselves. That we're so conflicted with other people because deep down we don't know who we are. And we take our angst about that out on other people. We're so consumed with creating and defending an identity for ourselves that we treat other people as collateral damage in that battle. We'll talk more about that later. But I think people of integrity are different than that because integrity implies a certain wholeness. A certain ability to be yourself even when it's not popular but not to be a jerk about it. That's what makes people of integrity compelling. The world values people who stick up for what they believe in. But deep down, we live in a world that's nervous that they could never do that when the chips are down. When the world sees somebody who does it, someone who truly is what they appear to be, a person who is not afraid of being disliked or misunderstood, the world honors that person. And right now, we are not known as that kind of person in the world. Rightly or wrongly, we're simply not known. Christians are not known for being that sort of person. Christians are often derided, and this is partly our fault and partly not, as being hypocrites, as people who are the opposite of what they seem to be. People who say one thing and do another, people that preach love but practice hate. So integrity is important not just because you want to set some kind of personal purity record and impress the Wesleyan church. It's important because it begins to put the lie to the way our culture thinks about us and begins to help us build a better reputation in the world. So what what does it mean to be a person of integrity? Well, in the passage from 1 Thessalonians, I think Paul gives us some insight into what it means to be a person of integrity. And I'd like to lift three things. This is, after all, a sermon. Three things for your consideration this morning. One, integrity is about good behavior. Now, that sounds terribly legalistic, but it's in part true. A person of integrity regularly does the right thing. When Paul wants to build a case that people should trust him and respect his authority, he said, look at the way I've behaved when I was with you. I didn't trick you. I didn't flatter you. I wasn't greedy when I was with you, even though I could have been. I came to you with pure motives. I was gentle. I was like a a nurse caring for children. Remember how tenderly I took care of you. And, And Paul only has the right to say this stuff because he's done it. That's the only reason he can say, trust me. Now it is, uh, I kind of alluded to the Wesleyan church before. It's, it's interesting for me as a Wesleyan outsider coming into the Wesleyan church where, you know, 40 years ago or so, Wesleyans were generally associated with a kind of legalism where people were told not to drink or smoke or dance or go to movies or whatever else, a whole, uh, play cards, etc. And that's not what I mean when I say be a person of integrity. I'm not talking about keeping rules for rules sake. What I'm saying is we need to conduct ourselves reliably well and honorably when we're with other people, not because we value keeping the rules, but because we value the people that we're talking with. If we really think we have something to share with people, as Paul truly thought he had something to share with the Thessalonians, we have to conduct ourselves in a way that when push comes to shove, we can say, remember how I've been with you. Remember how I've acted when I've been with you. Now, this, of course, does not mean that we're going to be perfect. 
Right? Not even a sanctified Wesleyan is perfect. And that's, again, another sermon for another time. I've got lots of sermons I preached as a result of this, I guess. We're all going to fall short. Right? But when we do, confession will come quickly, honestly, and completely so that others can learn even from our mistakes. Right? We can't behave perfectly, but we can become people who behave well even when we screw up. More on this later. But I want to challenge you on this point this morning, right? So often we treat our, our personal behavioral issues as private. No one has a right to judge me but me. It impacts nobody but me how I act. But this text shows pretty clearly how Paul's life of integrity helped him to demonstrate the love of Christ in a better way than he would have if he had not been a person of integrity. We all have issues of sin that we struggle with. I struggle with gluttony. And gluttony is not a, there's not a line when you've eaten too much and then you become a glutton. Gluttony is instead a a persistent identification of your identity with your food, right? And a fear that if I don't eat the food I want to eat, I'll be unfulfilled and unhappy. This morning, I challenge you to remember that whatever battle you're fighting is not just about you, but it is about your ability to show Jesus' love and mercy to the world more completely. I need to do whatever I can, to whatever extent possible, conquer and control my gluttony, not so that I can boast to Jesus about how I beat gluttony, not so that I can wear a nice medium shirt that says, I beat gluttony on it, right? But so that I can have a healthy body that's going to be useful in showing the love of Christ in a broken world. So integrity matters, and part of integrity is the way we behave. Two, integrity is about living in the direction of your calling. Integrity is about living in the direction of your calling. Integrity is not just about behaving well. It's about wholeness. And as I said before, we live fragmented lives many times. We have lots and lots of responsibilities in our lives to children, to parents, to employers, to churches, to schools, to clubs, to sports. And all of these responsibilities require different skills. And sometimes we find ourselves being radically different people in these different situations. At the office, we are the deferential and responsible employee, but deep down, we hate it. And so what do we do? We repress our anger at the office, but we come home and blow up at our spouse and our kids. We feel pulled in so many different directions. And we feel that we have no way to cope with all the different people we're called to be. And so our lives are fragmented and fractured and everybody else takes the hit for us for our lack of wholeness. In contrast, a person of integrity lives what we might say an integrated life. A person of integrity knows who they are, knows who God has made them to be. And so when they're confronted with a situation... They don't have to go rummaging through the Rolodex of personalities. And they say, okay, which person am I supposed to be now? But instead they say, how can I be the person God has made me to be now in this situation? It might sound like I'm splitting hairs, but there's a world of difference. There's no, there's no taking off one identity and putting on another. You're the same person wherever you are. And the goal is to find creative and fruitful ways to be that person in different situations. So often people say to me, you know, when I was a a pastor in Pennsylvania, it was a very suburban, very fragmented kind of area. People would say things like, I feel like myself at home, but I don't feel like myself at work. And a person of integrity says, 
I know that the self God, I know what the self is that God has given me, and I need to be that person wherever I am. And in fact, if I'm not doing that, I'm not showing faith in the God who gave me myself. Does that make sense? <laughs> like if you're this person God has made you to be, but you don't think it's enough for this situation, you're not really putting trust in a God who gave you that personality and that way of being. So a person of integrity knows who God has made them to be and lives that out in different situations. And again, we see this very clearly in what Paul does among the Thessalonians. Paul says, I faced a lot of opposition, but I still he had courage to carry out his ministry of proclamation. Why? Because that's what God made him to do. In fact, did you catch what he said where, when Paul says, uh, I was, in fact, I was enabled not only to, to proclaim the gospel of God to you, but share my very self with you. Right? There's a way in which Paul is so integrated, so living out his calling, that he doesn't even know if he's just doing his job or if he's being this person, just being himself. There's, there's no clean and neat line where his calling ends and his self starts. He's just being, naturally, the person God has made him to be in the world. Despite persecution, which was never fun, he finds fruitfulness in being that person. How about you? Part of being a person of integrity is having this kind of wholeness, knowing your calling, living it out in whatever situation you find yourself in. If you want to be the kind of person that the world can trust, this is part of it. To have a sense of what God made you to do and being unafraid to do it wherever you are. Now, how we know that, that's a whole other sermon, as I've been saying several times. But basically, that only comes with slowing down long enough to look honestly at your life And to see what you're doing that's really bearing fruit for the kingdom. And what you're really doing that's making yourself and everybody around you miserable. And doing more of this and less of that. Three. A person of integrity is open to the critique of others. This passage shows Paul being very interpersonally vulnerable. And that's especially so when you consider... The fact that Paul is writing as a young man here. Uh, It's one of Paul's earlier letters. And often Paul's early letters are sort of marked by this prickly personality. You know, I can't imagine Paul was a fun guy to hang around with sometimes. And that especially goes for young man Paul. But here he's being very vulnerable. He's telling the Thessalonians how much he loves them. How much he depends on them. He says, I have no joy. I have no strength if you are not strong in the Lord. I want to see you again just to see how you are because if you're doing well, I'm doing well. But if you're not, I'm not. I feel joy before God because of you. In all these things, Paul is vulnerable, even dependent on the Thessalonians. Let me tell you about yesterday. Yesterday was a miserable day for me. Because I took Jack to soccer in the morning in Fillmore. Well, actually not because I took Jack to soccer in the morning at Fillmore. Uh, Soccer was fine. It was a typical five-year-old soccer game. There was a lot of chasing a ball, but whatever. Uh, But when I was with Jack at soccer, something happened. And I'll be glad to talk about it in more detail another time. This just isn't the place for details. Suffice it to say, an acquaintance took me to task for a parenting decision I made. Now, I want to be clear, this person had the authority to do this, right? They weren't being a jerk. There was nothing wrong with what they did. But those of you who are parents know how this is, right? 
Most of us take a lot of pride in being good parents, even when we're actually too sleepless to do a good job. But we take pride in being good parents, and we really get defensive when someone criticizes our parenting. And I I do too. I love my kids a lot. But here's, here's the thing. This guy was right. He was right to criticize me. I needed to make a change in the way that I was taking care of my kids. Now, when he called me out, I went through a few stages. And all of them were natural, but none of them were good. First, (laughs) first, I was frustrated with him for calling me out. Second, and this is most inexplicable to me, I was angry at Jill for some reason, even though she had nothing to do with it and was not even there. Third, I wanted a friend around so that I could tell them about this person. And because, there's the preacher thing coming out. Because I know how to spin a story, I wanted to tell them the story in such a way that I could make this guy the bad guy rather than me. This way, two things were done at once. I killed two birds with one stone. I could feel better about myself and this person could think better of me. And as I say, all of these stages are natural when we're brought face-to-face with a mistake that we've made. We do whatever we can to reassure ourselves that we haven't blown it. We're not at fault. It's not our problem. I'm okay. And so we shoot the messenger or we blame an innocent spouse or, or we do whatever else we can to convince ourselves and other people that we are innocent. We are okay as we are. If you just knew me, if you just understood, you would know that I'm one of the good ones. I wanted to reassure myself of that, and I wanted to reassure everyone else of that, mostly because I was afraid I'd be lumped in the bad parent box, and then people would be like, oh, (laughs) that's him. He's the bad parent, right? But here's the thing. That's not acting with integrity. Why? Why? Because as I just said, right, integrity is about living your life in the direction of the person that God has made you to be. It is, whatever integrity is, it is not about reassuring yourself that you are okay as you are. If I want to be a good parent, then when someone makes a suggestion, I should listen to the suggestion. Why? Because if I listen to it, maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong, maybe I'll learn something, maybe I won't. But if I don't listen to it, then I'll never grow. And I'll stagnate. And more broadly, of course, if I want to be a person of integrity, if I want to be a person whose mission in life is maximizing my kingdom potential, then when someone points out a place where I might just be wrong, then I need to listen. Why? Because they might just help me in meeting my goal of being a person of integrity. And if not, there's no harm in having listened to them. But, but if I do the opposite, if I insist on my own righteousness, then I will never, ever grow. Too often, we as Christians are hung up on appearing virtuous rather than being virtuous. And in the end, that is a death trap. I need to be vulnerable to the critique of others, even dependent on it, because it's a sure sign that God is working in my life, even if it hurts a little. Using other people to point me towards him. Now, I've said that being a person of integrity is very important if we want to reclaim some credibility in our culture. I think this really gets at the heart of it, right? The Thessalonians love Paul. Why? In part because he depends on them and he says, I love you, I need you. Yet so often we as Christians enjoy the sense of being under attack by the world. 
And when someone points out a flaw in us, we go through a whole bunch of theological and semantic gymnastics to explain why we're not really wrong instead of saying, thank you. Thank you. I'll think, I'll think about that. Maybe I'll even change because of what you've said. Do you see how that's a gospel thing? Like when you say that to someone, you take someone who's coming to you, perhaps in an adversarial enemy situation, and you've treated them as a friend. And what's more, you've helped someone who may not even know God, you've helped them to see that that God has used them to help you. I'm a preacher, right? I love it when people come to me and say, something you said really helped me grow. Something you said really pointed me to God. Imagine how good that would feel to someone who has no idea who this God even is. When you go to them and say, thank you for that. That changed me. That impacted me. I think I'm a better person now and I know God better because of what you said to me. That stuff only happens when we drop the need to out-argue non-Christians and start out-submitting them. When we have absolutely nothing vested in our own sufficiency, when we have absolutely nothing vested in our own righteousness, we're finally in the spot where God can start to use us as people of integrity, people living in one direction to become more like him. Well, enough. The sermon has already been longer than most of mine. It's late and it's hot. I've tried to argue that integrity is one of the most important characteristics that Christians should exhibit in this time. And that Paul demonstrates it in three main ways here. Through his reliably good behavior, through his faithful use of his gifts and his calling, and through his radical openness to and dependence on others. And I'll just close by asking you, which of those three things could most use a tune-up in your life? Reliably good behavior, a faithful use of your gifts, or an openness to independence on others? What, what's keeping you right now from being a person of integrity as God has called you to be? I just want to close with a word of prayer that we as a people might exhibit that kind of integrity so that God will draw more people into the kingdom through us. Let's pray. God, what I have said this morning is, of course, impossible for us to do on our own. It's impossible for us to be people of integrity on our own. You have showered the world with grace upon grace, though, and we know, God, that this is your desire for us. And so you've given us the tools and the grace whereby we can become people of integrity. So, God, we pray for our life together as a church. We pray that we would be this sort of people, people that the world would look at and say, here are a group of people who are very faithful to the gifts you've given them, a people who are reliably honorable, and a people who are willing to be dependent even on us to help them grow. We pray, God, that that would be exhibited in our lives personally and also in our corporate life together so that in all these things we can give you glory and honor. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.
perhaps cognizant of the difficulty of the calling which he had just given to the Thessalonians, ends the book this way. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Go in peace.